Well, good morning, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. It is a, a joy and a privilege to be here and to speak to you and open God's Word with you. Uh, as Todd said, we're, we live in Ankeny, Iowa, right in the middle of, of the state, just north of Des Moines. And it's nice to be away, but it's sad as well as we miss our folks. And even thinking this morning as I was getting ready about the people I don't get to see this morning, that would have been uh, at our church. And, uh, but it's a privilege to be here with you and to see brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we live, uh, no matter if we've ever met before or not, uh, I get to truly call you brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, family, it's great to see you, and it's great to open God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles, would you please open to James chapter 4. Pastor Todd asked me to uh, preach on just a few verses this morning, and so I'd love to look at those uh, with you this morning, read those, and maybe uh, the, the Holy Spirit will move and, and, and open our eyes to the beauty of God's Word. Uh, well, it's the final, before we read our text, it's the final Sunday of 2020. Let that sink in for just a moment. You made it. You did it. You finished the year, the final Sunday of 2020, and what a year it has been. What a crazy year it has been. Um, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I enjoy this. On Christmas Eve of every year, CNN does this top 10 news stories of the year. And I always try to guess them. I don't know why, but I enjoy that. And so just for a moment, think of if you had to come up with the top 10 stories of 2020, uh, could you come up with what do you think CNN will, will say are the top 10? That list could be probably 100 long this year. But for sure, it's been an interesting year. Uh, I'll mention just a few that are on my, my guess. I think, uh, no doubt, CNN will put the racial injustice and uh, the tension that has been in this year, for sure, that'll come up on that list. And even though that seems so long ago, what a difficult time that has been this year as we've um, weighed through that. For sure, the health pandemic will be on that list as we've been enduring that since March and, and having to decide how to, how to live and how to work and how to play and all those different decisions that have gone into that decision. And then uh, just a month or so ago was the presidential election and the difficulties of that and the nervousness and um, the voting and just all that brought with that, that crazy month and time of the year. Uh, sadly... 2020 has caused many people to argue, many people to fight and to criticize one another and to gossip and to slander, to judge one another. And it seems like people all over the world have put themselves into camps. And those camps are based upon their opinions, right? And they seem to find people who agree with them and people who they agree with, they love and they get along with. And then those that disagree they argue with and they complain about and they point their finger at, they judge. People are so divided right now. Do you feel that? As an Iowan who lives there, people are so divided. I can only imagine that's true here and I can only imagine that's true all over the world is people are so divided. We're so angry. There's so much disagreement and arguing and slander and gossip going on right now and it's all based upon the camp or the or the opinion you have so you're either a black lives matter person or a blue lives matter person or an all lives matter person and that's your camp and that's who you agree with and that's who you disagree with everyone else or when it comes to the health pandemic it's either the 
the masks are the right way or staying home is the right way or no, life needs to reopen is normal right way and, and you have an opinion and a stance and everyone else seems to be wrong and we're mad and we're arguing and we're frustrated and you're either a Republican or a Democrat, you're either for Trump or you're for Biden or you're for a third party and you just seem to find whoever you agree with and, and everyone else seems to be the enemy. And our world is so, so divided right now and it's sad and it's scary and it's, it's upsetting and sadly, the church seems to be as divided as the world is. Sadly, houses of God don't seem to look much different. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? As a pastor in Iowa, I feel that. I show up on Sunday morning or I show up to our small group hoping the church will look different. And sadly, I can't say that it does. Not overall, I'm not casting judgment. I'm not trying to say that's 100% true, but I hoped the church would do different. I hoped the church would reflect better than it has. And sadly, what I see is as much division in the church as I see in the world. And it breaks my heart because I think what it's doing is it's revealing we're not as strong, we're not as loving as we thought we would be. We talk a good game, but I'm not sure we've acted very well. And as an outsider who's just a guest speaker today, I'm, I don't know you, I don't know this congregation at all, but I'm just showing you what I see and telling you what I see is the problems that are in the world are in the church. And I wish it was better. I wish we would have responded better. Our text today is a reminder for the church on how we should treat one another. Sadly, many churches have seen their brothers and sisters warring over different opinions rather than uniting under what matters most. Isn't that what you've hoped to see? That the church rallies together and is, is in love with the gospel so much what Christ has done that we're willing to put our opinions aside for the greater unity of what Christ has done for sinners like us. And yet instead we see division and so we need, we need someone to call us out. We need someone to remind us how we ought to respond and that's our letter today. James is writing to a congregation, to Christians, reminding them of how they should act. And even though this was written 2,000 years ago, written before our current health pandemic, written before our current presidential election, written before the racial tension that we're feeling right now, it is exactly relevant. 100% relevant. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Someone from the outside's got to call Christians to act better, to humble themselves, to repent, and to change and to live according to how Christ has asked us to live. So let's look at our text today. It's James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And imagine that this was written today. Imagine that a pastor friend wrote us a letter asking us to change and to live differently. It says this, James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That's our text this morning. We have some notes for you. Hopefully you got one of those. I want to walk you through our outline real quick to show you where we're going to be heading. I want to look at three aspects of our verses today. The first thing we're going to look at is the warning. What does James call us to be careful of, to not do, to stop doing? We'll look at the warning. Then we'll look at the reason for the warning, and he gives us two. He gives us two reasons why we should never do that thing, why we should stop doing that thing. And then he ends with a quick solution. He ends with a brief word of of solution on what should change. So that's our outline today. Please, if you're willing, take some notes, follow along. I believe the Holy Spirit uses his word every time the word is open. He uses it to convict, to challenge, to correct, and to give us next steps. And so the Holy Spirit will do his job today for sure, and he'll change our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so let's start this, our text this morning with the warning. Look at verse 11. The first few words tell us of the warning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There's the warning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He gives us the problem. The problem is speaking evil against And I looked up this word just to make sure I understood what it was um, um, condoning. And it's condoning slander. It's condoning condemnation, critical words or criticizing one another, pronouncing judgment upon someone else, finding fault or gossip. It's kind of some broader definitions of that Greek word is to slander, to gossip, to condemn, to criticize, pronounce judgment. Or to put it simply, this is what James is telling us to stop doing. Do not act like the world. Stop acting like the world is acting. The world will criticize one another. They will point fingers. They will slander. They will gossip. That's who they are. That's their nature. Their sinful nature will bring that out of them. And the Christian church should act different. Those who love Jesus, who live for God, should act different than the world. So just a a brief uh, summary of verse 11. Do not act like the world is acting. That's the problem. But that's not only the problem, but we also see the, the perpetrators, the ones that he's calling to stop to do this. And it's brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, are. he uses those words specifically because it's a call to Christians. You could, some, uh, you could um, substitute the word Christian there for brother. Anyone who follows Jesus, who claims the name of Christ, stop. Stop speaking evil against one another. James is reminding them of their relationships. Your brothers, your brothers and sisters, your family, you're on the same team. Brothers and sisters are people who ought to get along, ought to live in unity Christians are ones who love one another, who care for one another, who bear each other's burdens, who meet each other's needs. And yet these are the same ones that are blaspheming each other, slandering one another, gossiping about one another, condemning one another, criticizing one another. Instead of being a team, they're at each other's throats. And this church, 
It's the Christians. It's not the Christians pointing their finger at the outside world. It's not Christians condemning false actions, bad actions from the outside world. It's them criticizing one another. Those are the perpetrators, Christians criticizing fellow Christians. At, at our church, one of my, my uh, title is discipleship pastor, and one of the job descriptions is I get to teach membership class. So anyone who wants to join our church has to go through a two-week membership class, and my wife and I have the privilege of leading that class. And every time I lead that class, one of the things I have to teach on is church unity. And so we bring our people in and we teach them about the three commitments. If you're going to join our church, there's a commitment. And the second commitment is a commitment to unity. And whenever we do this, we, we use a PowerPoint screen and we put a picture up there of a family, of a large family. And so we tell our people, before you're, willing, you're, you're able to join our church, you have to remember you're joining a family. You're committing yourself to new brothers and sisters in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ do not agree on everything, do they? Most of you in this room probably have siblings. You don't agree with your brother and sister on everything, every topic. Maybe very few topics you completely agree on, but you have unity with them. You love them, and you're not at each other's throats when they disagree. So they're able to have a various opinion, and for the sake of the family, for the sake of unity, you get along. And so we tell our brothers and sisters, welcome to church. These are now your siblings. Get along with your siblings. And when there's conflict, go to your brother and sister and ask them for, to humble, humble yourself and, and repent and be willing to keep the unity for the sake of the family. And this is what James is calling out 2,000 years ago. There's this congregation of believers that are at each other's throats and he's saying, you're family members. Family members don't act this way. Family members unite for the sake of unity and for the sake of the common good, the common purpose, which is to spread the gospel to the nations. I was thinking of how to explain this. And in 2020, the greatest problem in the world has been a virus, right? It seems like the thing that we're all talking about is a virus. You know what, a, you know what an autoimmune disease is? An autoimmune disease is where the body attacks the body. The immune system, which is meant and made by God to protect the body from outside viruses. And autoimmune disease is where the body attacks the body. And that seems to be the greatest problem in the church today. The greatest problem to the American church is not a virus, but an autoimmune disease. Where we have instead looked at each other as our greatest problem. It seems like the American church has attacked itself. And instead of uniting when times are tough and difficult, coming together, pulling the troops together, reminding each other of the common good, the common goal, we've been at each other's throats and attacking one another. I can just imagine Satan right now. He's probably sitting in a lazy boy with his feet up, just laughing as the church destroys itself. Satan has no easier job than right now as he watches a pandemic destroy the church from the inside out. As Christians criticize and, and critique and slander and judge one another to where James has to write to this church and say, Stop speaking evil against one another, brothers. James isn't warning them about the outside world. He's warning them about the greater problem. 
An autoimmune disease, which is the body attacking the body instead of doing what it was meant to do, which was protect and to care and to meet the needs. That's got to stop. We have to take James's advice and listen to this warning. He doesn't just give us a warning. Point two of our sermon today is the reason. Why is judging so wrong? Why is speaking evil so wrong? Why is this such a big problem? And he gives us two reasons. In the rest of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, I believe James gives us two very specific reasons why judging one another, speaking against one another is so wrong. And before I tell them to you, I want to remind you that wrong actions always flow from wrong thinking. You act when you think incorrectly. Your actions always lead from a heart, a heart issue or a mind issue. When you think wrong, you act wrong. And so he's going to tell us now how we're thinking wrong, why we speak evil against one another, why we judge. You see, whenever you judge someone, you think that two things are insufficient. Whenever you judge, whenever you criticize, whenever you speak evil against something, someone, you think two things are insufficient. Number one, you think the law of God is insufficient. God's word. You're, you're convinced the word of God, his law is insufficient. So therefore, you have to step in and do something about it. And number two, you think the judge is insufficient. You think God himself isn't doing a good enough job. You need to step in for him. And that's what he points out. The end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 2, you believe when you judge someone another, when you speak evil against someone, you find two things insufficient. Let me read it for you. It says this, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. Whenever you judge someone, whenever you speak against someone, you find the law of God insufficient. It failed. It didn't do its job, and therefore, you judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. So the second thing you find insufficient is the judge. The law is not doing its job, and the judge isn't doing its job. I guess it's my job. I better step up and criticize and critique and tell you what you're doing wrong. Because there's no, nothing else is fixing the problem, so it's my job. And that's, that's why speaking evil against one another is so uh, wrong, incorrect. You see, judging someone is demeaning the law or finding the law insufficient because you won't let the law do what it was meant to do. When you speak evil against someone, you're not letting the law do what it was meant to do. Theologians believe that the law of God has three main purposes. Maybe you've heard this before. I didn't make this up for sure. But what they believe that the law of God has three main purposes. Number one is to be a mirror. So the law of God is to be a mirror. You know this because you're in the book of James. James 1.23 reminds us that the word of God is a mirror. It says this, Anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and walks away. The law of God is to be a mirror. You look at it, you read it, and it shows you what you're really like. So the law of God is supposed to be a judge to you because you come to it with sinful hearts, sinful motives, and you read what you ought to be like, and it judges you. So you already have a judge in your life. It's God's word. 
So why do we criticize one another when there's already a law in place? The second thing the law is meant to be is it's supposed to restrain evil. So the law of God teaches you how you ought to live and calls out impure actions, impure motives. So it restrains evil by telling you to what you ought not to do. And the third thing the law of God does is it points to the character of God. When you listen to the law of God, you don't see yourself in the law of God. You see God's heart. So whenever you read the word of God, you see perfection. You see righteousness. You see holiness. You see love. You see kindness. And you don't see yourself. It paints this picture of what God is like. So the law of God is beautiful. It's a mirror. It restrains evil and it points to the character of God. So when you judge someone, you're taking away the mirror and you're propping yourself up as the mirror. You become the mirror in their life where your opinion becomes the standard. You criticize them and say, that's so stupid. How could you do that? Why do you think like that? Why are you acting like that? You should act like me. I'm the one that is the example for living. That's not our place. The law of God does that. When you judge someone, you believe it is your job to restrain evil. So you see evil in their life and you're like, well, since the law of God's not doing it, I better step into its place and tell you you need to stop. Hey, how dare you? I can't believe you do that. Let me play the role of restraining evil in your life. And the last thing when you judge someone, why is that wrong or incorrect? Because ultimately it points to you instead of God. See, the law of God points to God. But when you become the judge in people's lives, you point to yourself. You say, man, if you were just a little bit more like me, this world would be such a better place. If there were just 8 billion Travises in the world, this would be a really great place. That's not my role. I don't lift up myself. I don't prop myself up as any example. I point people to God. Point them to him. So church, let's remember that the law is good. The law is perfect. The law is righteous, and you are not, and I am not. Let's let the law do what it was created to do. Allow the law to convict, to change, and to point to the one our people really need, which is God himself. So that's why we, when we judge, we demean the law. And secondly, when we, do, when we judge someone, we, only, we also demean the judge. That's what the beginning of verse 12 teaches us, is that judging someone is not only demeaning to the law, but it's also demeaning to the judge. You see, similar to the law, there's already someone in that position in people's lives. According to our text, becoming a judge in people's lives actually proves your spiritual immaturity instead of your spiritual maturity. So many times we think, man, if I just call out sin, if I step in and I, and I correct people and I challenge people and I tell people wrong, I'm being the spiritual mature people in their life. Not according to James. James says when you step in the place of the law and the judge, you're actually proving your spiritual immaturity. He says you're not being a doer of the word. You're actually putting yourself in the place of the judge which proves your immaturity. He says this, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's already one judge. There's already one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. You see, when you become a judge in people's lives, it reveals two things about you. Number one, it reveals pride. 
as if you have the ability to save and to destroy. See what the text says in verse 12? There's already one who is the judge. He has the power to save and to destroy. You don't. I don't have the ability to save anyone or to condemn anyone. I am also one that needs saving and, con- and deserve condemnation. I'm not the judge. It just reveals pride when I play that role. And number two, it reveals forgetfulness. It reveals forgetfulness of my own sinfulness and debt. One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is of the unmerciful servant. If you have your text, I won't make you flip very much this morning. But turn to Matthew chapter 18. You know this text? It's one of my favorites. Matthew chapter 18 verses 12 through 34 tells of a servant who owes a debt. A great debt. And the master comes to the servant and forgives this great debt. Remember the story? I'm going to read it for you quickly so I don't mess it up. It says this, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in, You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. You know the problem with the second um, servant? He forgot. He so quickly forgot his own debt. He so quickly forgot the forgiveness and the mercy that he received. And so he became a judge. Instead of remaining a grateful beneficiary of mercy and grace, instead of that mercy and grace that he received changing him forever, he forgot so quickly and put himself in the place of judge. So he went to one that owed him a small amount and played the judge in his role, therefore demeaning the ultimate judge. We do the same thing, people. Matthew 18 is a story about us, how quickly we forget our great debt and the mercy and forgiveness that we've received and we treat others so terribly where we should be grateful for the mercy and grace that we've received. Church, you see, putting yourself in the position of the law or in the position of the judge in people's lives is not the solution, but instead only proves our spiritual immaturity. So what is the solution, church? 
If we understand the warning, if we understand the reason, what do we do? We just allow sin to reign and rule throughout the world. We never open our mouth. We just allow people to do whatever they want. We never speak up. We never step up. We just roll over, be a floor mat for the world. Is that the response? No. Very briefly, James gives us the solution in verse 12. And he says it very briefly, but we have to use scripture to help us understand what he means by this. Look at the very last phrase in verse 12. He says this, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Church, I think the solution to the problem is to remember, to remember who you are. Remembering who you are sets everything into the right perspective. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. So who are we, church? Three things. I want to give you three reminders of who we really are. I'm a pastor in Ankeny, Iowa, but I am just one of you. I am just a fellow brother and sister. And so I'm in this camp with you. I'm just one of these folks. And this is the greatest thing that we can do today is to remember who we are. Number one, who are we? We're brothers and sisters. The greatest thing we can do is to remember that we are brothers and sisters. Church, the church, we need each other. We don't need to be against each other. We don't need to go after one another. The, law, the greatest problem in the world today is not each other. It's not your brothers and sisters. There's so many other things that are causing chaos and wreaking havoc on the world today. Why would we point fingers at one another and be against each other? Let's remember what is the most important, that there are sinners dying every day, spending eternity separated from their Heavenly Father. And it's the church that God has sent on a mission to seek and save the lost. He's given you the gospel. He's put it in your mouth. He's asked you to be a mouthpiece for him. Let's remember that we need one another. God has specifically placed you in neighborhoods and communities and workplaces to be his mouthpiece. Why would we criticize other mouthpieces? I live in Ankeny. You live in Wilkes-Barre. God has placed you here to be a mouthpiece of the gospel I'm in a different state, in a different city. He's using us both for his good and his glory. Why would we criticize one another? This church comes together every Sunday. You love one another. You care for one another. Let's not criticize. Remember who you are. Remember your relationship, brothers and sisters. Number two, the second thing you need to remember is you are fellow convicted criminals. Remember we said so often we put ourselves in the place of the law and we put ourselves in the place of the judge. And we do that because we so quickly forget that we are sinners in need of a savior. And instead, sinners in need of a savior so quickly become self-righteous jerks. Isn't that one of the greatest problems in the church? Is they're not beggars grateful for the mercy they receive, they're jerks. Self-righteousness is the most disgusting thing in a church. How could any forgiven sinner be a self-righteous jerk? That makes no sense. If we would be reminded of our great debt, the story in Matthew chapter 18, if we remember our great debt, we would never be self-righteous jerks. We would be loving neighbors who care for the lost, who love those who we inter interact with on a daily basis. I want to read Matthew, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.15 to you. It says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. Paul says that he's the greatest sinner he knows. Paul claims that he is the chief of all sinners. I think the reason Paul had such a great impact on the world is because daily he was reminded of his debt. He didn't show up as a jerk, an arrogant, selfish man. He showed up as a debtor, just grateful for breath in his lungs, that God would dare use a hypocrite and a persecutor of the church like himself. So Paul begged for unity when he traveled to Ephesus. And when he traveled to churches, he begged for the church to be united and to set aside their self-righteousness because he knew how disgusting it was for sinners to be self, self-righteous. Church, we need to be reminded of our great debt. You were born with a death sentence. You were born destined for eternity, separated from Heavenly Father. But his, in his great love and mercy, he saved you. Amen. The third thing you and I have to remember today in order to live in unity is that you are no longer condemned. You are no longer condemned, but instead you are forgiven saints. I love how Paul starts so many of his letters reminding himself and his readers of who he is. He says this over and over again. Paul, a bondservant of Christ. He says that all the time. And I think Paul reminds himself and his readers so often of that because that is the life-changing story of the gospel. He wants to never forget who he was and who he is now. He is no longer a slave but a servant a willing servant who chooses to serve Jesus for the rest of his life, a loving servant of God, no longer a slave. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This law that condemns us, the judge who is worthy to condemn us, became one for us. The, the judge himself, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, took on the shackles of a bondservant, came and substituted him place in our place, taking the condemnation that I deserve daily. As the law condemns me, Jesus took that condemnation. As the judge deserves to slam his, his gavel and say, condemned to eternity, to condemned to separation from the Father, Jesus Christ took my place. And took that condemnation for me. Took my cross. Bore my shame. Took the nails. Took the pain for me. Was willing to substitute himself for a guilty slave like me. Jesus Christ took my shame. See church, I think if we remember daily that we are brothers and sisters. That we're fellow convicted criminals and we are no longer condemned. That will set our minds and our hearts towards love and unity. We won't condemn our brothers. We won't condemn fellow convicted criminals. We won't condemn others who are no longer under the punishment of God. We'll love them, live for them on mission to accomplish what Christ has set before us. See, I think the greatest thing that the church needs is to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. That will remind us that the greatest problem in the world is not each other, but our own sinful hearts. My favorite text as we wrap up today, I think, is Romans chapter 8. If you don't mind turning there, I just want to read this text for you as we conclude. Romans chapter 8, again, is Paul 
who Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, his goal was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And his goal was to teach the Gentiles all that the Jews knew about the law, about condemnation, about a substitute, about a savior. And I think Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is the greatest summation, in my opinion, of the gospel. He takes the whole story of scriptures from us created in the image of God to walking away in rebellion from God to needing a savior, a substitute, who is Jesus Christ, and then asking us to live in unity. I think Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is the greatest summation of all of this. And I think if daily we read Romans chapter 8 or read the Bible, it doesn't matter, and if you take us portion of scripture and dedicate it to memory and allow the word of God to cover you and to change you, you will live like James calls us to live in James chapter 4. You won't criticize one another. You'll live in harmony with one another. You'll remember our purpose. So I want to just read for you, read over you, uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 and allow this to just cover you and to remind you of the greatest news of the world that Jesus Christ paid your debt. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray and ask God to do that very thing in our hearts and lives. Heavenly Father God, we come before you guilty. We come before you asking for mercy, asking for forgiveness, for none of us are innocent of what James critiques us for. Every single one of us has a heart towards criticism and slander and gossip. So many times we wake up as lawyers and judges wanting to criticize and condemn others instead of seeing the own, our own sinfulness. And so before we do anything today, Father, we want to ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for being critical. Forgive us for being judgmental. Forgive us of pointing at others' speck and ignoring the log in our own eye. Father God, I ask that you would change our hearts 
and thereby changing our actions. God, change our hearts, remind us of our great need, of our unworthiness, of our need of a Savior. Remind us of the great debt that Christ paid for us. Allow this good news of the gospel to change us from angry and critical to grateful. Teach us that the greatest problem in the world today is not our brothers and sisters. Teach us that the reason you've kept breath in our lungs for one more day is to be your ambassadors, to declare the good news to the world. Father, I pray that you would change the church. Start here in this local congregation, Father. Change our hearts and our attitudes. Make us the light of the world, the salt of the earth that you've called us to be. I pray that you would use this church in this city, in this state for your purposes, that Wilkes-Barre would see a difference in these Christians, that they would be able to start a difference. Allow your Christian church to, to be a beacon of hope and light to this dark, dark world, Father. For however long we endure these difficult days, I pray that we would shine brightly. Allow us to not act like the world around us, but to act differently. And it's all because of the great debt that you have paid through your son, Jesus. Help us to live as redeemed saints, no longer condemned slaves. We love you. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Well, a hearty amen to that amen. And uh, we thank you for Travis for speaking to us the word of God. Um, as I sat there, I just thought about how much I still have to work on as a, as a child of God. And so I thank you for the reminder today. And James has been doing that constantly, reminding us of, of things that we already know, but things we need to remember. And so I pray that you would this, this Sunday, this week, is remember the gospel, remember what James has been teaching us, because it is one constant theme. And we're going to continue that next week as Pastor Mel speaks to us from the end of chapter 4. But I pray that you'd come back on Wednesday for church family time. Thanks for being, being with us this morning. I pray that you'd be blessed. And let's just end in prayer today. Father, thank you for this church and what you're doing. Thank you for Pastor Travis. Just bless him and his ministry at home. Uh, just help us, Father, as we've been learning constant reminders from James to put them into practice. One of the greatest challenges the church has is to remember what we've learned and to, to change based on what we've learned. We're all very good at listening to sermons. What we struggle with is putting them into practice on Monday. I pray that today would be one of those days that we would take a step forward and we would look at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as allies, fellow soldiers in the trenches with us, and we would see what an asset, what a strength they are to our daily battle in this world. Thank you for today. We give you all glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.